Welcome to the Ram Iyer Podcast with your host, Ram Iyer, thought leader, author, keynote speaker, workshop leader, and mentor. Listen to his engaging conversations with experts from across the world and his personal insights that will help you create a better life, become more successful, and achieve your personal greatness. Now, here's Ram! Welcome to Business Thinking Radio. I'm Ram Ayer, your host and president of the Business Thinking Institute in Princeton. Today's show is about how women can be much more successful in business and in life in general. A conversation with Sally Helgeson, one of the leading experts on women and leadership in the world. Business was largely conducted by one half of the human population, just men, for thousands of years. But that is changing rapidly. Over the last few decades, women have become increasingly and highly successful in business. They are increasingly reaching senior levels in business around the world. Some women complain that the reason they are unable to reach more senior levels is because of a glass ceiling, an external set of factors. Salke Helkerson, in one of her previous books, wrote about the inherent strengths of women and how using those could help women become more successful. The many experiences of women as daughters, sisters, friends, and mothers contribute to their leadership style. What serves them well in those roles are sometimes not in their own best interest in senior leadership positions, whether it's in the business world or the nonprofit world. That is the topic of the latest book by Sally, who has teamed up with one of the leading business coaches in the world, Marshall Goldsmith. So you have two world-class people here, and writes about how female professionals can change self-limiting behaviors which could help them become more successful. It is an extension of Marshall Goldsmith's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Sally's work is widely regarded as the gold standard when it comes to women's leadership since the publication of The Female Advantage in 1990, still in print, and it's been translated into 12 languages. She's written six more books and speaks to audiences around the world about these issues. She also works with executive teams and partnership firm leaders to develop a more inclusive culture. So welcome, Sally. It's a pleasure to be here, Ram. I'm very glad to be talking with you today. So you've written seven books, and they're all about women, their importance to society, and how women can be more successful in society. What got you interested in this topic and writing on various aspects of women and success for the last 30 years? The topic really rose out of my own experience. In the 1980s, I was in corporate communications, mainly as a speechwriter. You know, it was the 1980s, and what I noticed in my work was what a poor job most of the organizations I worked with did of taking advantage of the skills and strengths that their women could bring. There weren't a lot of women. There certainly weren't many women in senior positions. We're talking about 1985, 1986. But I knew from my relationships that women had a lot of strengths that weren't being leveraged or recognized. I was also seeking to learn what could make me more effective. So I was reading a lot of the books that were starting to come out for women. And what I noticed was almost everything, whether it was academic or popular, that was aimed at women in the workplace back in the 80s, emphasized how women needed to change, how they needed to adapt, rather than looking at their strengths. And I thought, 
let me do something, let me do a study, let me do a book, where I'm really looking at what the strengths are of the best women leaders, because that may help women recognize that they do have significant strengths to contribute, and it may help organizations get better at recognizing that. And that really started me on a 30-year journey where I've been fired by the mission to work with women all around the world, as you say, to help them to recognize, articulate, and act on their greatest strengths. The result of that research that I did was the book, The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership, which was the first book published that looked at what women had to contribute rather than how they needed to change and adapt. And I think the timing was good, 1990, for that kind of message. And that set me off. So my career, the other books I've written, the workshops I've delivered all over the world, my speaking and coaching has all come about as a result of that. But it was really just me acting on what I saw in the workplace and trying to address it. You are quite the visionary because... Human nature is, you know, if I need to become better, I need to add something else to the repertoire. Yes. Something that I'm missing, okay? Yes. And if I screw up, it's not my fault, it's somebody else's fault. Right? Well, if you're a man, you might think if I screw up, it's someone else's fault. But one of the challenges for women is if they screw up, they often take that very hard and become very hard on themselves. So. That's another thing we're trying to look at in the book, How Women Rise, is getting Mm. past that. But you're exactly right. You know, that feeling that we all need to become different in order to succeed can lead us in a lot of difficult directions. And really, it's more a matter of being able to emphasize what your strengths are and bring attention to them and act on them. That's what's really going to position you well. There are two points that you bring up. One is you can succeed being exactly the way you are with certain inherent strengths that you have. And people often ignore that and they think, I need to go get something else in order to succeed. That's exactly right. You know, you need to be able to recognize and act on your strengths. The other side of that is in those strengths, there can be a shadow side to different strengths. So as you know your strengths, you also want to understand how those strengths that may have gotten you to where you are could Mm. potentially not position you as well in the future because they could become the source of, as you say, self-limiting behaviors. So that's what we're really trying to do. Marshall's template or central insight into the idea of what got you where you are may not get you where you want to go. It doesn't mean you need different strengths. It means you need to be stronger about representing your strengths and represent and also understanding the potential pitfalls that could lie within those strengths. Somebody once asked me, what is the single most important attribute a leader must have? And of course, I started racking my brain saying I need to come up with a really good answer. And what came to me was a rather simple thing, which I think is the essence of your book. In order to be a successful leader, you need good judgment. You need to understand the context and decide whether, you know, as you put it, your strength is truly a strength in that situation or it's actually a weakness. That's exactly right. And so it's that question of judgment. And people often get tripped up because they develop an unlimited faith in whatever got them to where they are without making the kind of adjustment that the second half of a career 
really does require. We look for different qualities in senior leaders who have a large scope and large responsibility than we look for in contributing team members who are not at a senior leadership level. So being able to understand how your strengths need to adjust as you go down that path is really important. That got me puzzled as I was reading your book. I see you've listed 12 things women do to, if you will, self-sabotage. In just about every one of those cases, it's a paradox. One part of it is a strength. The other part of it is it could work against them. So when they read it, they shouldn't read it in absolute terms, but rather say, I need to understand that this other possibility exists, and I, Miss Whoever, need to use my own judgment on when to use it this way or that way. You know, Ron, that's such a good point. I think, like, just looking at our first behavior, which is reluctance to claim your achievement, mm-hmm. what I've seen in the workshops I've done is that women will often give credit away. The minute that somebody says, oh, you did a great job on that, they'll say, oh, my team did it, or, you know, my boss did it. They'll point to a collaborator. They'll point to someone outside themselves. So that is rooted in generosity, in team mm-hmm. spirit, in mm-hmm. modesty. It's a good thing, but if it becomes compulsive so that you find yourself basically unable to accept credit and unable to say a simple thank you and stand behind your achievements, stand behind what you have done and what you've contributed, that's going to get in your way, particularly, again, as you move higher. So, as you say, exercise your judgment. Once you have an awareness of what the strength is and what it's rooted in, You can decide this is an opportunity where I can, you know, distribute the praise I'm receiving. But you might also in a different opportunity say, this is a moment to step up and say, really happy that this had the great result that it had. You know, if it's a client satisfaction thing, you know, the client, you know, our rating with the client went up by 35%, which is unprecedented. Thank you for acknowledging that. You need to exercise your judgment. What do you say to people who say, give away 100% of the credit and take 100% of the blame? That's not a recipe for a sustainable career or, I must say, also a happy life because there is too much self-blaming that goes on in any case with a lot of women in organizations. And that's one of the really strong messages here is letting go of judgment, letting go of judgment of yourself. But also, people who are too hard on themselves tend to, at times, be too hard on other people. Because they're expecting perfection in everything. And that can get in the way of some of the fluidity and flexibility and good humor and leadership. That That's is one of the strengths of women. You know, the accommodating nature is a nurturing nature is inherent, right? But we You're don't know whether it's inherent or trained, but no, we're not <laughs> suggesting that we That's get a rid point. of that. That has a great strength, but it can get in your way. That nurturing, that desire to nurture can make it in an organization when you're at a higher level, difficult to delegate because you're trying to protect people. It can make Mm -hmm. it difficult to hold people accountable. So once again, it's the strength that can become self-limiting unless you use it with real awareness. You're not saying here is a strength, it could become a weakness and therefore don't use it. You're saying this has the possibility of also hurting you. Be aware of it. That's exactly what we're saying. Be aware of it and develop a range of ways of reacting that will serve you 
and it will position you for greater authority and influence. You know, at the Business Thinking Institute, we focus on how to make individuals succeed and we look at it broad-based. And we found a very interesting thing that ties to the work that you've been doing. 71% of all businesses fail. And that hasn't changed in 20 years. I had one of my businesses fail. So I said, me fail? How could that happen? Right? And when I looked at it and I talked to experts, they all told me that you lacked capital, you lacked technology, you lacked the right team, you lacked the right plan, you heard all of these things. And I'm saying, oh my gosh, I'm lacking so many things. Let me go look at the failure rate. It hasn't changed much in 20 years. So I said, something here doesn't make sense. And you know, we went and did a survey of 320 business people, including 75 multimillionaires, and we found something very surprising. Most people think they fail because they lack something which is external, capital, technology, team, plan. We found that a bigger set of reasons why people fail are because of things they possess within themselves. I label these the silent killers of success. And many of the things you talk about in your dozen, Aramak, that's true, and they pertain to people who are entrepreneurs, people who are starting businesses, and they pertain to people in organizations as well. Usually, when we encounter a problem, the most helpful thing is to, without self-judgment, without self-blame, but really look into what we're doing. You know, it's really interesting what you brought up with business thinking. It brought to mind Laszlo Bach, who was the, you know, basically, they call it, of course, it was in Google. So they call it something like, you know, the chief people person or something, mm-hmm. but he was the head of talent. He ran out a really interesting study using Google's algorithms in which they found that the people most likely to succeed at Google were not superstar engineers, which they had always assumed, but they were people who had the personal qualities that allowed them exactly what you're thinking, the flexibility to be able to judge when to step forward and take leadership of a team and when to step back and be a team member. So I think Mm -hmm. that what you're talking about, what I'm talking about, are very much in alignment with that idea. We're advocating real flexibility in terms of what your leadership style is and an ability to adapt to a situation, not situational ethics, but adapt what part of your skills you're bringing to a situation, as your judgment suggests. See, I'll give you one example about business thinking. So I'm looking out of my window, I see a bunch of trees, okay? One way of looking at it is saying, you know what, beautiful day, let me go for a walk. The second person may look at the same thing and say, bunch of trees, let me go to my boss, get $5,000 in the budget this year, I'm going to go put a park bench, and I'm going to sit there at lunchtime. Third person may look at the same thing and say, I can put a fence around this and charge, you know, 50 cents for everybody who goes in work. <laughs> or I can chop these 50 trees down 50, <laughs> 50 feet each, 2,500 uh, feet of firewood times $10, I can make $25,000 from this. Yeah. What makes each one of these people think differently? And the last person, the last uh, example, two examples were about people who have this business bent, right? Yeah. When you look at the inherent reaction, if you will, of how Women would generally take a look at this. They say, my, my, this is my sense. Uh, guys read, you know, it's a beautiful day and, you know, bench would be nice. I, I see the point there. And I see, you know, you know, another way of, you know, monetizing this. Let me say, how oh, can accommodate everybody? And that's yeah. one of your 12 issues. You know, that's a perfect example. That's, I think, behavior number seven we have in the book. Number eight is this, we call it the disease to please. And that is the Correct. desire 
to really be seen by everybody as a wonderful person. And again, as you say, a good thing. You know, it's uh, I want other people here to enjoy themselves, and I want to be someone who contributes to the fact that people enjoy being here. And, and you know, being perceived mm-hmm. of as a wonderful person is part of that. You know, I have a wonderful example of, in the book of a woman who had this capacity. She was a hospital administrator I worked with mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. number of years ago. She had been doing community relations for the hospital, and she was so successful at it. And everybody in the community came to rely upon her and really see her as the linchpin. So when she moved on to a higher position, it sort of framed people to want to work with her. Her replacement came in, but everybody kept saying, oh, no, we want to stick with Deborah. We need Deborah. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. she ended up basically doing both jobs. She ended up doing her old community representative job, which, of course, was not great for the person who took her job because she never got a chance to develop what her skills were and became understandably resentful. But she also overloaded herself unreasonably, and she was doing it out of the best of motives to try to continue to accommodate the people that she had worked with before. So the disease to please can lead to struggling with boundaries, to saying yes to too many things. And again, going with Marshall's central template and insight, it can work well up to a certain level. But as in the case with this hospital administrator, it can really get in your way as you move to uh, higher levels where you have greater uh, responsibility and broader scope. And what is the key message for women from that example of Deborah? The key message is that if you did a wonderful job of pleasing people in your prior job, that was a good thing. But now you're in a different job and you need to let that go. And by the way, the best thing you can do is to be a mentor or resource in helping the person that replaced you also do a wonderful job. But you're not the linchpin. It's not helpful for you to be involved in every decision. In fact, you're better off being a repository of advice for the person who took your job and focusing on what your new job is. So that is going to require you to assert certain boundaries. And guess what? Everybody might not be thrilled. There might be people you used to work with who said, you know, I really miss Deborah. I'm not happy about that. That's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. That's how it goes. You That's need okay. to be able to accept that. And mm-hmm. it goes back to your point about judgment. You know, judge when it's appropriate, judge when it's not. But it certainly wasn't appropriate what she was doing. And it wasn't helpful. And what helped was when her coach pointed out, you got where you got because people helped you develop. And you are not helping other people develop because Ah. you feel so much loyalty to your old customers. So how are they ever Uh going to become successful? And that helped her to see it with fresh eyes. So basically, you know, if I'm the one working under Deborah, help me develop to be able to do what you do. Don't do it for me. Yes, exactly. Because when you do it for me, one, you become ineffective, and two, you don't let me develop. There's one other thing I've observed. I was wondering what you thought as one of the leading experts on women. See, business thinking, very a lot of people think, is all about being money-minded. And I've yeah. spent a lot of time thinking about this. I have a very simple definition. Business thinking is about constantly seeking to add value to the other person and seeking compensation for having added the value. 
the value you add is always in the eyes of the person on the other side of the table. And the compensation is not always money. I could do something for you as a favor. I may call it a favor. But what I'm doing is, as compensation, I'm building goodwill with you. So a lot of nonprofits add a lot of value to so many people in society. And how they get compensated is in the form of goodwill. Sometimes it's money. My sense is women seem to be unwilling to do that and part. They're not willing to say, and I want compensation. Or if they seek it, they seem to say, you know what? I'm happy that you're happy. And they leave it there. I think that that is often true. Again, you know, there are, there are women who are excellent at seeking compensation. True, true. But where this is getting in your way, I think, where it does get in women's ways, and, and I know this very well. I remember my mother took a job as a professor at a local university, and I remember her saying to me, I just love this work, and I can't believe they pay me. They wouldn't even need mm-hmm. to pay me. I enjoy it so much. So what she was doing there was she was kind of sending a message that if you enjoy something, you know, being compensated for it is really irrelevant. But as you say, it's the other half of it. Compensation, how do you know that something is valued? You know something is valued because the person pays for it in terms, Mm -hmm. you know, it can be monetary or it can be in terms of recognition or something. But you really need recognition along with mastery in order to really have a very satisfying experience of the work you do. And I think mm-hmm. I know this from having done so many workshops with women. They often tend to put a value on the quality of their experience as well as the monetary compensation. And again, this is a good thing. This mm-hmm. is a human mm-hmm. thing. Work should be an enjoyable experience and there should be intrinsic rewards, but it is not an either or thing. Mm-hmm. So requiring that your efforts are compensated, it's not either or. It's not either I'm compensated Mm -hmm. by money or satisfaction. Ideally, we want both. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the gifts women bring to many organizations is their desire that work be an enjoyable activity and a rewarding activity and that they have some ability to control their own time and build meaningful relationships instead of looking at it all in a very transactional way. And I think that's a great thing that women have increasingly brought into organizations. But again, it can come back to bite them mm-hmm. when they make it in their mind and either or and feel uncomfortable asking for the compensation that in fact should be their reward. One key theme, Sally, that I picked up from reading your book is a clear message to women which simply says, don't be defensive about being a woman. You need your femininity. In your book, The Female Advantage, you talked about feminine principles, distinguishing qualities that enable them to be better managers and responsible leaders and effective at so many different things. Uh, Talk a little bit about that message you're trying to give these people and what those feminine principles are. When The Female Advantage was published in 1990, there was very little recognition of that. And women were, I think, were urged to be defensive. I remember early women's so-called, you know, career developmental leadership training programs within companies. Many of them had things like, you know, they had women watching football games and talking about the football game as if that was going to 
you know, help them act more like a leader or they would, <laughs> you know, urge women to, you know, play a lot of golf in order to develop their leadership skills. And, you know, golf is a wonderful sport. Boy, is it time consuming. And women have a lot of responsibility. So I think the culture was really encouraging a certain amount of defensiveness then. You know, I have really been a close witness to how things have changed. And one of the things I see, I don't think that women are defensive about being women anymore. I think mm -hmm. there's enough solidarity among women in many workplaces. I think there's a pride in what they're doing and what they can contribute. And I think that there's an increasing recognition uh, certainly since 1990 when the Female Advantage was published, that women have of what their own strengths are. So I don't see women as being defensive uh, so much. I feel, I do see that women who are in very senior positions often have a feeling of isolation and are very aware of when they're the only woman in a room because the higher you go, unless you're in a women-dominated industry or company, the more likely it is that you're going to be one of very few women at the table. And I mm -hmm. think that rather than feeling so much defensive about that, as they may have 30 years ago, the impact of that can be more a feeling of isolation, but also a feeling that, you know, you're really on show. One phrase we use is role model hell. And the idea is that, you know, women are constantly being looked at to be a role model for other women and to represent all women when they're in situations where there are not many women. That's a big burden for anyone to yeah, carry. I think you had an example of, I think, the lady at Yahoo, right, who instituted some reform on maternity leave, but then she chose not to take it herself. Right. And that was a great example, I think, of this sort of what I call role model health, where she instituted very generous maternity benefits when she took over as CEO. And then when she had wins, she, as CEO, decided to take a very short maternity leave. And... People all over the country were beating up on her and publishing editorials <laughs> about how she was sending the wrong message. And mm -hmm. that's exactly what I mean by this. You know, women get straightjacketed into the expectation that, especially at high levels, all other women are going to be judged by that standard. And it, sure. it really creates a straitjacket. I don't know if you know this a relationship expert called Barbara DeAngelis. I listened to an interview she had with Tony Robbins about, I don't know, about 15, 20 years ago. Uh -huh. They talked about the changing relationship between men and women. If you and I are walking into a building and I open the door for you, you could say thank you or you could say, why would you open the door? I know how to open the door. I can get the door myself. And the moment I have one woman who says it one way and another who says it the other way, the next time I get to a door, I'm confused. Yeah, Should I exactly. open the door or not? So what she says is it'll be decades, not in our lifetime, before these things get sorted out, or maybe they never will. <laughs> well, I think that's true. I think the protocols change. What I've noticed is that, you know, early in this, Women, as, as you say, you know, when women were, because they were so isolated and alone, often defensive, you know, would be more likely to say, you know, why did you open the door for me? I don't see that very much anymore. 
and uh, you know people seem to be more comfortable uh, with understanding that the mere opening of a door doesn't indicate that I don't think you could be a leader and I think, you know, I'm bigger and stronger and better than you. That it's just um, cultural nicety that is very nice in the observance but doesn't necessarily need to be always an expectation either. You know, we can again have the flexibility to, you know, if we're at the door first to open it rather than, you know, sitting and waiting. So again, you know, it gets more natural. But I think that the fundamental point that these changes are really big and that's why being a pioneer is hard because we're creating something that the world hasn't seen. Men and women have much more in common than they used to. Technology has changed this as well. Men and women used to use very different tools to do their work. And now we all, and even children, we all use the same tools to do our work. And I think that that's an important thing to remember and that, it again, it's a big change but we're also settling into how do we get comfortable with these skills and language that are bringing us closer together while remaining authentic and real to who we are. As you pointed out, women have two kinds of obstacles, one external and another one internal. And as you know, there is a huge movement around the world to remove many of the external obstacles. So how were yeah. you able to message women to work on their internal obstacles? Well, this is one of the most important parts of the book, How Women Rise. Both Marshall and myself understand, recognize, acknowledge, and see external barriers in terms of Mm -hmm. culture and in terms of structure of organizations for women. These things are real, and they Mm -hmm. exist, and they are being dealt with, and it's a slow process, and there are some steps forward and some steps back, as we've Mm -hmm. seen. Anybody who's watched this over particularly the last whole 50 years, However, what we wanted to do in this book was not flee from that reality, but say, let's focus on what women themselves have most control of. Because guess what? If your boss is only really comfortable with guys on the golf course, you're probably not going to change that. Or if your organization has a performance review that is, subtly in terms of its expectations and how it defines superior performance, subtly weighted to over-evaluate male achievements and under-evaluate women's achievements, you may be able to talk to HR about that, but you're mm-hmm. probably not going to quickly change that. What you do have control over are your own habits and behaviors. And guess what? As more women learn to act on their strengths and to recognize where self-limiting behaviors may lie within those strengths. And in doing so, achieve positions of greater authority and influence. That will be the most powerful driver of change in organizations. Because over the last 30 or 40 years, the change that has occurred in organizations and in most organizations and certainly in good organizations. The changes have been remarkable, but the changes have been driven primarily not by HR department making new policy decisions or by people spontaneously getting rid of their own unconscious bias. Most of the changes have been made because women have 
achieved greater positions of authority and influence, and that has changed the culture. So by focusing on what you can do to make sure that your habits position you to be as effective as you can be and give the biggest scope to your talents and ambitions for everyone, that's going to, on one hand, greatly increase the likelihood that you're going to have a satisfying, rewarding, and sustainable career yourself, but it's also going to be an optimal factor for helping to change your organization and workplace cultures to be better and more comfortable places for women. Because guess what? If there are not more women in senior positions of power and influence, organizations are not going to change and certainly not going to change as rapidly. So it's very important. We're not trying to blame women. And, you know, I mean, Marshall's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, was about the behaviors that get in the way of successful Mm -hmm. people. And guess what? About eight, you know, 75% of his clients are men. So a lot of those behaviors are the behaviors that get in the way of successful people. All of us have self-limiting behaviors. Men and women do both. But we, in this book, wanted to focus on the self-limiting behaviors that hold women back because we feel it's so important for women to fulfill their potential as leaders. See, intellectually, Sally, what you say makes 100% sense. But humans, men and women together, are inherently lazy. They, they want the quick shortcut to success. <laughs> You're saying, listen, you know, there are certain external factors you don't control. Focus on controlling the factors that you have control over. Leverage your feminine strengths. Manage your feminine weaknesses. It's very intellectually right. But they're going, yeah, but you know what? If only there was no glass ceiling, you know, I would get a lot farther in life. What do you tell those people? How do you get them to kind of right the rudder? I think when people are reluctant to make changes in their own habits and behaviors, it's usually rooted in a sense of being a little overwhelmed or not knowing where to start. And, you know, if I have to change all these things, I don't know how I'm going to change them. And so it's one of the reasons in How Women Rise, we really focus on giving a very clear, helpful template that's based on decades of coaching experience for how people can begin to change their behaviors. And the first thing we advocate is starting with one thing. And what not even one whole behavior, but one part of a behavior. You know, if you look at the 12 behaviors we look in there and what jumps out at you is that you expect your boss to spontaneously notice and reward your achievements. So you expect people in general to notice your achievements without your having to draw attention to them. Then don't suddenly decide you're going to be a brand new person and a really effective self-promoter on the next morning. Pick mm-hmm. one thing to work at. You know, say, okay, mm-hmm. I don't think my boss realizes how well-connected I am in this organization. I am going to start, you know, sending them an you know, and I think that limits his understanding of how effective I am. So I'm going to take the responsibility of shooting him an email, you know, once every two weeks to just let him know who I've been in touch with. Take that one action. Yeah. If you find that, you know, people... Uh, sometimes when you make presentations or share an idea in a meeting, 
people can't follow you or they say, oh, you seem to be a little bit all over the place. What are you really trying to say? Or, you know, you've all snapped that you just get to the bottom line. Then you might think, ah, I think I probably need to become more concise in my communications. Let mm-hmm. me just start rehearsing what I'm going to say a bit to try to make it as concise as I can in advance going into the three meetings that I have in the next week. So mm-hmm. I think that when people are reluctant to make changes, it's because they don't know where to start. And really mm-hmm. starting with one thing is important. And then the, the other thing I think that just makes this book invaluable for women is, you know, the idea that once you've decided where to start, start enlisting allies so that you get yep. feedback and so mm-hmm. that you get support. For all the time I've been, you know, doing this work with women around the world for the last 30 years, one of the most common things I hear is, you know, a woman say, you know, whenever I give a good idea in a meeting, it doesn't seem to get noticed. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, half an hour later, some guy will say the same thing and everybody mm-hmm. goes, oh, Jim, what a great idea. Or, you know, yeah. write that up for me. And a woman say, you know, I just feel like my voice is not heard. If that happens to you, before you go into a meeting, say to somebody, man or woman, look, this has happened to me a number of times in the past where I'll say something and it doesn't get noticed and someone else says it and it gets picked up on. If that happens, could you at least notice it and let me know? Is this accurate? Is that actually happening? And often that person will then speak up and say, you know, hey, Jill just made that point. That Uh, person doesn't know your ally. You're right. So I think that, you know, developing the skills to be able to enlist people as allies and solicit feedback from the people you work with, those whom you trust, is a really great skill, even, you know, working, setting up peer coaching relationships so that you can have other people hold you accountable mm-hmm. for changes you're trying to make can be yeah. invaluable. It, it, you know, we all have the human capacity to change and grow and adapt without formal, expensive coaches. Yeah. See, my last two coaches were both women. But, and I didn't yeah. go saying I want a man or a woman. You know, I talked to people and they said, I'm most comfortable with Linda. And, you know, Linda was the one who got hired. So I think that we want real flexibility there. And I think that the same is true for mentoring as well. I was generational, at least, ahead of, you know, where, where people are now. And back in the day that I was coming up, the only real mentors available to me in terms of position were, of course, men. Mm-hmm. And so I benefited my whole life from having male mentors. And I, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's been a great thing. So again, I think that there's, we want that flexibility and to understand that, you know, help can come from any direction. You know, one thing uh, with age, most people realize that everybody in the world has a role to play in society. You know, it may not be the same role you play. I applaud you for coming up with this structure of management, which you labeled as the web of inclusion, uh, which, yeah. which draws people into your realm and stitches them together, uh, the strengths of each person, you know, to form a strong web. How have people in hierarchically run organizations reacted to your structure, your model? Well, again, the world has changed. Uh, I published the book, The Web of Inclusion, a new architecture for building great organizations in 1995, it was fairly counterintuitive and revolutionary at the time. Organizations were still 
quite hierarchical in their in how they were constituted. What I hadn't realized were two things in terms of, I think it's why the, the work in the web of inclusion has been so influential. First of all, the change in the nature of the technology required a restructuring of workplaces. You know, the, the technologies that determined how we did our work starting in the Industrial Revolution were very hierarchical technologies. So mm-hmm. organizations adapted to reflect that, whereas network digital technologies began to dominate everything. They distributed information much more broadly and mm-hmm. gave people access to building connections that they had not had before. So I think the technology has really in many ways supported the idea that organizations need to be more web-like, which has been a real factor in that acceptance. But the other thing I think is that, you know, in today's world, we, in organizations, the phrase diversity and inclusion have become almost wedded to one another. And I think that's become another factor in making that work more relevant, is that organizations have begun to recognize that if you're going to have a diverse workforce, and the diversity is the reality of the workforce today, we have a very highly diverse workforce, that the only way you can really lead and manage a diverse workforce is through inclusive behaviors at the leadership level. It just doesn't work otherwise because people are too likely to feel and to be excluded and undervalued and not really having their talents and contributions Recognize, so I think that both of the concepts, web and inclusion, have slightly different connotations and meanings than they had when the book was published in 1995, and that that's why that work has remained so relevant. One last question. So, yeah. in your experience, what is the one thing that you heard or learned from somebody when you were young, older, uh, that guides you in your professional life to this day? I think that what I heard from my parents and what they really exemplified was to stand up for what you believed and to, you know, be very clear about what your own ethics and values are and not get dissuaded from that, to sort of trust your gut about whether something is right for you or not right for you. And that has really been my lodestar. My work writing these books, and, you know, there certainly was no market for books about women's strength and no market for a book about, you know, organizations functioning as webs of inclusion. So my work has involved a lot of risk-taking. And what I've had to do is really trust my own gut about the value of the subject that interests me and the observations that I've been able to make about workforce over the last 30 years. And that has stood me in good stead. And people often tell me, oh, your work is so ahead of the curve, you know, you anticipated this, that, or the other. And I think that to the extent that that's true, it really has been the fact that I have had the courage, I think, from my parents to trust my own intuitions and insights and then, you know, put the labor in to put them out there into the marketplace of ideas. Absolutely. So, so just to the listeners, I want to point out a very simple thing, which I'm, I hope Sally will agree as well. This discussion is not one about the superiority of either men or women. Rather, that in order to advance as human beings, we must leverage the innate strengths of everybody in society. You don't have to 
be like a man to succeed or be like a woman to succeed. If you're a woman, you can become more successful by leveraging your own femininity. And you can be a whole lot more successful if you build an inclusive web of women and men. That's Secondly, exactly right. the importance of judgment and context. What is a strength in one situation could be a weakness in others. So know your strengths, know your weaknesses, and most importantly, know your context so that you develop good judgment over time. Whether you're a woman starting your career or a seasoned executive, you will benefit from the seven books that Sally has written because she has a body of work on how women can be more successful, unlike any that I've seen. So you too can write. Thank you, Ram. That was a beautiful summing up. It's been wonderful talking to you this afternoon. Absolutely. It's incumbent, you know, on each one of us to build an inclusive web. Imagine a web of inclusion with 7.6 billion people around the planet. <laughs> I think we've got one. <laughs> yeah. So, Sally, thank many, so many much. thanks for taking time to come on Business Thinking Radio. I enjoyed our discussion, and I, as I said, I would like a lot more time to talk to you. You're such an interesting person. I look forward to having you back as you glean more insights on how women can be more successful. Thanks for listening to Business Thinking Radio. If you'd like to comment on this episode, please send an email to podcast at businessthinking.com. This is Ram Ayer signing off. Thank you for listening to the Ram Ayer Podcast. Every week, we bring you the thought-provoking and practical conversations to help you become better, smarter, and more successful, helping you achieve your personal greatness. All from the perch of Ram Ayer, the thought leader, author, keynote speaker, workshop leader, and mentor. If you want to comment on this episode, please email us at podcasts at mitramayer.com. If you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit www.mitramayer.com forward slash podcasts. Or find the Ram Ayer podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever fine podcasts are uploaded.